You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight we're talking about the 1983 adaptation of Stephen King's novel, Cujo. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. The middle children of history, man. No purpose, no place. We have no great war. No great depression. Podcast. I'm Brian. With me tonight, Mr. Jeremy Benson. Howdy. We're talking Cujo. You picked this film. I did. This was a uh, birthday party favorite growing up. A birth a birthday party favorite. Oh yeah. You get some kids together and you're like, hey, let's everybody let's... hang out in the living room and watch Cujo. You know what's crazy? I saw Beethoven, which is also a movie about a Saint Bernard. Very different family family film. Uh, I saw that first and then saw Cujo. Cujo has a family in it. It's a family film. You know what? It kind of is in the beginning. It starts off very Disney outside of the Swirling Blood title. Right. The score, you know, it's very sweet. Very beautiful. But it turns dark and ugly real quick. Yeah, Donna has an affair. But then it gets lighthearted again when they're playing with the dog and they're in the car. And you want to go ahead and uh, let's let's give our thoughts a little bit about the uh, about the novel here, and then uh, we'll we'll go into our movie stuff. What did you think of this book, man? Uh, I'm a big fan of this book. I don't think it's one of his best, but okay, definitely not one of his worst. Well, the put this for the listeners. What would you consider some of King's best? Uh, Drawing of the Three. Well, that's a good one. The Shining. That's a good one. Uh, Eleven twenty two sixty three. Haven't read that. Salem's Lot. Dead Zone. Dead Zone is a really good one. That's referenced a lot in this. Misery. Misery is good. I haven't read that in a long, long time. Uh, It's a good movie, too. The Stand. Yeah. That's a long book, man. Yeah, but I don't mind long books. I don't don't mind it if it's like It. Like, It was a long book, but I felt like it was, you know, it was a page turner. You know, The Stand... Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of fantasy, though, to be honest. So it's not really my cup of tea. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna respond to that just off of the concept. So, but, okay, talking about the dead zone, the uh, novel definitely plays off like it's a sequel to what's well, part. You know, it becomes later on. You've got, uh, let's see, the body which turns into Stand by Me, uh, Cujo, or Dead Zone, Cujo, another short story I can't remember. Needful things. They're all. Oh, oh Castle Rock. Dark Half. Nah, see, I, I actually, I've read that one. I haven't read that one in a while. I think Cujo is better than Dark Half. Uh, yeah, see, I don't know if I'd agree with that. I, I gotta reread the Dark Half, though. I just read Cujo. That's not fair. Well, you know, one of the things they really did differently in the book, because I've, I've seen this movie quite quite a couple times here, and uh, reading the book, I was surprised of all the all the supernatural elements. They're, yeah, they're, they're sort of, like, hinted. The movie just dropped that crap. 
yeah, like Frank Dodd, who I guess is he's a serial killer from the Dead Zone. Is that who his character is? Yeah, he's the uh, crossing guard police officer serial killer from the Dead Zone. And in the novel, it's it's definitely hinted that whatever evil was once Frank Dodd has returned and is either manifesting in bad ways or to me it never really just comes out and says this is what's going on it's sort of just hypothetically suggested yeah and it's not even it's not even hinted at that it could be it could be like a this evil spirit that it came as frank dodd now it's coming as right it's, cujo it's more like this bad thing happened and then now this bad thing is happening and there might be a connection <laughs> Yeah, well, it's weird too because when they play it out, it's like the you know the monster in the closet, right? In the book, and then as it goes further and further, like Vic, the the husband, he has a dream. The dog's in the dream, you know. The, the even dog. the description of the monster that Tad is seeing is sort of yeah Cujo later. I mean, that's just you know that's foreshadowing and yeah, but I mean other people but, see that too. Like even the sheriff when he yeah when the sheriff's getting biting the dust he. But see, again, that's that metaphor of, you know, just is he seeing Frank Dodd possessing the dog or is he seeing the murderer's eyes that he saw in Frank Dodd, which is kind of awkward because in the dead zone, he is 100 percent against Frank Dodd being the murderer. I mean, he punches Johnny in the face. He's like, you're full of shit. Frank Dodd was my my apprentice. I he came to me when he was a teenager and. You know, yeah, you can have an apprentice that's also a, a serial killer. And Johnny yeah. makes him pull the uh, time cards. And there was a time when he was out of town, so they called where he went. And sure enough, there was another dead girl in that town. Looking looking kind of suspicious there. Looking kind of bad for Mr. Dodd. Yeah. Call. The book does start off with the classic Once Upon a Time. And then it goes into the, the Frank Dodd story and talks about how, you know, like maybe there's this grandmother that would use the... If you don't be quiet, then he'll come kill you. Which, I, I don't know, that's a parenting tactic I haven't tried yet. If you don't shut up, a serial killer will kill you. You know Jack the Ripper? He was real. His spirit haunts this house. <laughs> he comes and kills any kid that doesn't listen to their parents. I thought, I mean, it's a fairly short book, especially in the realm of King's work around that time. It's very well documented, and probably most people know this, but he doesn't even remember writing it. See, that's the crazy thing. Like, all the problems I do have with the book, you know, and the pacing and all that, man, it kind of goes out the window. And he's like, yeah, I was I was drunk. I blacked out. I don't remember writing that. I mean, I've written stuff before and then come across it later and been like, I don't remember. I did that today, actually. It was like 50 pages of some apocalypse story. And I was like, I have no memory of this whatsoever. But a whole novel that's gone through galley proofs, editorial galley proofs, publication <laughs> like that's quite impressive mr mr king i think he enjoys enjoys writing and he does it every day and i, I don't know i'd have to i have never spoken to the man i'd love to i'd love to ask him like how did that happen here go here's how you get to success coke and lots of alcohol there you go maybe i need to change my nightly routine a little bit <laughs> Start carrying up like a rolled up dollar bills in your pocket. If I got a dollar bill in my pocket, I ain't rolling it up. Oh, you know, counting that sucker. All right, okay. So Benson definitely is never going to have a coke habit. So uh, we've established that. You know, that's good. You know, it's probably for the best. Now I could I could get a McDonald's straw and keep that in my pocket. 
Do those do those work as good? I mean, I, I, don't, I know. don't know. Uh, questions. I imagine that need they. I to. imagine they would. I mean, you just would just cut it, right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's a sound theory. It's doing the same thing the rolled up dollar bill is doing. It's actually like created. Yeah, so it, it should work better. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe it works too good. Maybe. Uh, well, you know, if it worked too good, you could always but I get guess, those. I guess too, like stirs. you get pulled over and the cop decides to check you, and he's like, "Why do you have a cut off McDonald's straw?" <laughs> Because and you, you know, I like I like that in your world, like the cops go to McDonald's enough, they know the McDonald's straws over all the other straws. I'm not even sure why it's a McDonald's straw. I think because it's a national chain, and like you could say like Circle K, but I'm not sure if Circle Ks go everywhere. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. You know, hey, McDonald's, they do have nice straws. Like you know? currently, I am drinking out of a Horizon white cup. So there you go. Well, that's that's definitely regional right there. McDonald's is definitely not regional. Uh, so, you know, you're painting a picture of a certain type of plastic straw. You want to use something that people can relate to. Now, back to the novel, Cujo. Uh, yes, please. Yeah, personally, I always, always really liked the story. I always thought, um, and it, like I said, it's not, it's not one of my favorites. I don't think it's as strong as Dead Zone, which, you know, just kind of constantly keeps pushing forward. While you're still getting plenty of character building moments and story there but the plot is moving forward where in Cujo there is a lot of there's a lot of character and story that kind of dwells away from what's main happening in the the only time it ever bothers me in Cujo and I wouldn't say that it bothers me it just sort of the first time I was reading it it just I went I want to know what's happening with Donna and the dog is when he kind of veers off and starts talking about what Boy, what's his name? Brett. Brett. Yeah. Brett Camber and his mom, and Brett has the dream about the dog, and it's like, okay, that's cool. Well, that was the only one that was cool, though. Like, that's the one, because that's, that's the one you just named out, right? Because that's the only one that's Well, it, it shows that, you know, it you goes know, into, I mean, it goes into, like, him getting along with his aunt and uncle. His dad's raised him to be kind of skeptical, and he doesn't like that his uncle bought the jukebox instead of built the jukebox and i mean there's character stuff there there's story stuff there but it's not part of the main plot so yeah the first time i read it 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 was a little bit of a drag on the plot but upon second readings and i enjoyed the other stuff and the mailman was a little uh, little oh the mail i like the mailman i like the mailman too but there was i remember the first time i was reading i'm like why am i reading this mailman's route <laughs> like why do i need to know that this old lady can't hear yeah see, and stephen king gets accused of that a lot like you know stop well, stop describing it, all this mundane bullshit and let's but, get back to the but like i said like upon second reading some of that stuff is like little jewels for me that's like oh okay that's kind of a cool especially later when you get into like needful things and you're like oh i remember her from cujo and oh man i'll be honest with you i'm, n- I'm never gonna reread this book that this is it i'm done never gonna reread it the okay spoilers here total spoiler warnings if you ever read the book the kid dies yeah it's very hollow and it it, it kind of made me mad when the kid died. There's a great spoiler for Dark Tower 7, if you haven't read that, too. There's a great little scene in the end of Dark Tower 7 where Stephen King gets hit by this van, right? Real life moment. Yeah. And the guy that hit him, hits him with the van, well, Roland and Jake from the Dark Tower save him from getting killed. And later, King is laying on the side of the road, and the guy that hits him is talking to him and said, I've seen some of your movies. I like the one about the dog. 
then he goes, I'm glad the little boy lived. And then King says he dies in the book. And he's like, oh, that's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will and say. And King, you know, he's admitting he thinks that. that he should have let the boy live. Yeah, he should have. Because, like, the boy is not really ever uh, a real focus in the uh, – he's not a focus really in the movie either. Uh, more so, though, I think, in the movie than he is in, really in the book. You don't get a lot of moments really – No, it's more Donna's story. Yeah, it's Donna and the it's dog. It's Donna and her husband um, – Total brain fart. Vic. Vic. I don't know if the kid dying is like as a writer, I can very well see that he just he got to that point and the kid died and he just never questioned it. <laughs> like, but at the same time, like, did yeah. he did he do it on a that's her punishment for cheating on her husband? Yeah, it just I don't know. It just doesn't go anywhere though. Like the, I mean, they because they still end up together. Yeah, he sticks with her. You know, it's just like, well, why did the boy? I will say you don't that have to talking die. about the novel, I remember being real young. I'd seen the movie. So, it was, you know, this was a situation for me where, like, the book was sort of an enriching process. And I'm learning more about the story. And I think because my dad liked it, that he would that that's how it became, like, the birthday movie. Is if he liked a movie, you know, it was like, all right, let's invite all your friends over and watch Cujo or Alien. I'm like, all right. <laughs> My friends are like, I'm never coming to your house again. Why not? Because I can't sleep at night for the next week. But I do remember going to the public library, and if you've ever seen the original hardback, Steve Kemp leaves Donna, or leaves Vic notes, handwritten notes, about the affair that he's had with his wife. And I remember flipping it open and reading, what's that little mole above her pubic hair? And I enjoyed fucking the shit out of... I'm like nine years old going, holy chamoly, Batman. <laughs> this has dirty words, and they're talking about pubic hair. Mom, can I check this book out? It's like that movie. It's that movie we saw. Let me see it. No! I, I mean, I like the book. It's 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 good. It is a lot of – there is a lot of fluff and a lot of like – I don't want to say don't lifetime. Think, but I don't think of it as fluff. Uh, to me, that's it, – It is kind of fluff it, I don't know, for me because like what – what is the point of it? I mean, it's like, just it's it's character story stuff. Like, like, but why do I need that information when you're telling a story about a woman trapped in a? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I can see from like his point of view is he's not just telling the story of the dog. He's telling the story of these families and the different paths that they're going on. It's just the story of the dog is what is kind of the central, most exciting thing in the story. Yeah. Well, you know, I do like. When he writes, and it's from like the dog's perspective. I thought that was cool. Yeah. No, that was fun to read. I love the, I'm going to go see if the boy is home. <laughs> like, that, that's why the end of the book is so good, man. It's, it's very tense, and it's, not, it's cool seeing like the different perspectives. You know, like you'll get the sheriff, then you'll get uh, Cujo, then you'll get Donna, then you'll get Cujo, then Donna. And I, I like that. I thought that was interesting. It made it real fun and real fast to read. The moments where it breaks away, those do kind of suck, but. You know, at the end, I don't really mind it that much. But the beginning, I don't know how I feel about the beginning. I was watching some of the behind the scenes of the movie, and the the, the director, uh, Louis Teague, he was he was talking. He's like, "Well, you know, I guess when you put yourself in a life threatening situation, all this other mundane bullshit really doesn't matter." Like, um, yeah, I guess, but I didn't need the serial storyline, and you know, there's a lot of time spent. On the what is it? Sharp cereal. Sharp cereal. The raspberry zingers. <laughs> the, see, the I, twinkles or whatever the hell they were. Like, to me, that just that, 
that's just that's that's story. That that's what Vic is going through at the time that he finds out that his wife is cheating on him. So he's got this big problem that's hanging over him. He's gonna lose his biggest account just because of some stupid dye that makes kids look like they vomit blood and then he finds out that his wife's cheating. So yeah. to me that's all part of that's part of Vic's story. And where, you know, Donna's story is that she's dealing with being a stay-at-home mom in a town that she's not used to. And her kid's growing up and she's starting to get scared. And, you know, when she gets trapped in the car with Cujo, she has to kind of get strong. She, at first, she's weak. And the whole the whole story, she's getting stronger. And she still loses her kid. It's part of the reason why, like, in the book, yeah. it, it's such a letdown that she loses her kid. Because she starts out so weak. Like she, she's cheating to feel better. And then throughout, you know, she breaks it off with Steve. She stands up and owns it up when her husband finds out she's cheating. She admits it and say, yeah, and she stands up for her son. She kills the dog and then he dies. <laughs> it's like all that, all that strengthening that Donna did was for not. The only thing she kept was her husband. And and it is, dude, it's, it's rough when that boy dies in that book, man. It, and it's not like the movie either. Like when she beats that dog with that baseball bat, like she goes back for seconds and thirds on that on that beating. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, people are holding her back, and there's even I think the like the third time she does, it, everyone's like, you know, let's let's let her get it let's out of let her, her system. Let her. Oh, the the <laughs> line in the book that always the part where at the end, like they cut Cujo's head off, and they take it's just so matter of fact. Well, you know, you, you had to check and make sure, you know, that's the only way you can check and see if uh, an animal has rabies. Um, you know, doing a, reading a Wikipedia. Speaking of rabies, I heard they're remaking that. Rabid. Uh, what, the David Cronenberg? Mm-hmm. Really? That's coming out on uh, Blu-ray here pretty soon. Shout Factory's putting out a new, nice, uh, I think it's a 2K transfer of that. Really? Yeah, buddy. I can't believe they're remaking that, but I, I could be okay with that. You know, that remake of The Crazies was pretty damn decent. I, if they do it like that, I, I, yeah, I could watch that. I could be down for that. Now, what I'm not going to be down for is... Uh, the, the remake of Cujo. Oh, my God. What, Canine Joint Unit Operations or some shit like that? It's now an acronym? Get out of here. Dude, that sounds like Watchers. It sounds like Dean Koontz, all right? We're talking about Stephen King, and you're going to go to Dean Koontz? Come on. No, no disrespect, Mr. Koontz, but uh, you're no Stephen King, buddy. I mean, you know, Watchers, yeah. Not a bad movie, though. Corey Haim. Terrible book. I know I'm going to get some flack on that one, because I know there's a lot of people that love that book, but... Oh, really? Oh, man. I could not hardly get through it. Uh, I, I remember reading it, but I remember it being really, really quick to read. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, for me, I guess, a lot of people give King flack for too much character in his books. But for me, that like helps me get emotionally invested into the story and... Where I have a really hard time getting emotionally invested into a Coon story. Yeah, there's not too many uh, books of his I've I've even actually read. I read Hideaway. I liked that, and I liked the dark. I read Intensity. I Intensity's good. Yeah, that was actually a pretty decent TV movie too. That's not bad. Um, but still, I didn't have that like Dark Rivers of the Heart's good. You know that moment where you know when Danny dies at the end of Cujo, it's like oh man. Intensity is sort of like, all right, okay, that's what happens. Okay. I feel like uh, when High Tension came out, those guys read Intensity, and they were like, you know what? We could do this better. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and they, and they, and they, made, they made Intensity a little bit better. Um, I know some people disagree with that. But speaking about better and everything, um, 
you know, we we're, were talking about the book and the, the pacing of Cujo. I think the you know, I saw the movie first. Um, well, I think this book just is one of those. It's one of those books that is. It's just long enough that it just leans itself right for an adaptation to the screen. Uh, like you said earlier about Jaws, if you take the book of Jaws and Spielberg did it perfectly. God, he is, did that so good. You know, you you take out all this extraneous characters. So, which, by the way, I mean, I think Cujo is a way better book than Jaws. I haven't read. I haven't read Jaws in a while. I read it not too long ago, and when they go back, like I'll tell you what Spielberg did right when well Spielberg or the writer, whoever came up with the idea, I don't know, maybe it was even a producer, but the idea for them not to go back every night, yeah, and for them to stay out there, yeah, man, dude, like in Jaws, like you and get to, that constant and to cut out that affair with oh uh, Hooper and Hooper and it's it's the it's sheriff's, sheriff's lawyer, wife, right? yeah, yeah. Right? oh man. That was dumb. It and was, it just sort of – There's a mob subplot in that, right? Yeah, and there's like a little mob thing. And In Cujo, like the suspense part of the plot is suspenseful as hell. In Jaws, I, I felt like he sort of lost some of the suspense. Uh, but Peter both Finchley, filmmakers yeah. did the exact same thing. They took that linear plot and said, okay, we got this. Spielberg made a lot more changes to his movie than Cujo, of course. Yeah, Cujo, they don't, they don't actually change. But that, that much. goes back to what I'm saying. Yeah. That I think Cujo is a stronger book because you don't, you don't have to change that much. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. This was back in the 80s. He said that, like, why do your movies make such, you know, easily adapt to the screen? And he's like, because I grew up watching movies. I'm one of the first generation writers that grew up instead of reading, right, watching movies. So I see the movie in my head while I'm writing. You can really you can you can get that sense while you're reading some of his earlier books. This is probably the first time in uh, let's say about a decade that I've gone back and read one of his older books. It's all I mean to me it's always you know? fun. Like for me his his writing style has changed. I don't know if if it's if it's more of a he got critical of his prose and and wanted to be more lean on his prose or it pretty much seems like after he put out on writing and he was talking about how you know all these how to write he went oh I, I probably should do that the movie um i don't know it it fixed almost every problem i had with the book uh i, I actually like the film better this is yeah this is one of the rare it's like jaws i, I like the film just a I little like, bit better but yeah i like it better. I, like, I like carrie better i think carrie flows better as the de palmer movie oh man that's 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 got to be one of his best adaptations um yeah uh, I think Shawshank makes a better movie. Oh, Shawshank is good. Uh, Misery's really man, good. Man, I can't tell Green Mile, like, I can't tell which is better, the book or the movie. I like Stand By Me. Stand By Me's good. Yeah, I just don't know if I like that better than I do the short story. Or the novella, I guess, would be the correct. <laughs> what about Salem's Lot, dude? That awesome miniseries. <laughs> as much as I love Salem's Lot, like, I really want, like, a, you know, like a good theatrical release version of that book. I didn't mind that Toby Hooper movie, really. To be actually, to be honest, now that I'm sitting here thinking about it. it you know, it had its moments uh, at, for the time. I thought it was fun. Yeah, but, James Mad Madison as the uh, caretaker was pretty badass. I just, you know, there's so much in the book that you couldn't put on the screen, and you could now. And you know, hey, that's the that's story. A, that's a, a, it's a pet pet project I would love to do. <laughs> All right, so you can send your checks into. <laughs> We do take cash, check, or uh, if you want to give us your credit card number, feel free. Uh, no, don't really do that. We'll go through the book a little bit more, you know, as we talk about the movie. But um, 
Well, I guess we talked about when we saw it, didn't we? Um, I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember you. Oh, I I saw this. I guess I was I was a little bit older. I was like uh, twelve or thirteen when I first saw it. But oh, you waited a while then. Yeah, yeah. I, I waited a little bit. Um, but it it wasn't really until I was I want to say I was eighteen. 19 getting ready to go into college and man i just put it in one night i had a beer i never finished the rest of that beer i got so hooked into this movie um i was just i was just blown away by the cinematography i just remember as a kid like falling in love with the the story play between god you know i'll be honest as a little kid I, have, I got an active imagination i used to be scared of monsters in my closet and stuff. And I just remember being, you know, about eight or nine years old watching this movie going, ah, oh, that it just, and understanding, like completely understanding the play between the imaginary monster in the closet and how when Tad sees the dog in his brain, he is connecting that's the monster. Yeah. Like I used to think that was just brilliant. And they, man, they did a a really good. I still um, think that's brilliant. No, they did a really good visual of that in the film where uh, Donna's watching the dog, and you can hear Tad reading his monster words yeah. in the car. And I love that shot when when it's going too far for her, and she's losing it, and she's dehydrated, and that camera is spinning around. And oh my god! Okay, well, okay, we got to bring up uh, Mr. Jan DeBont, the cinematographer, cinematographer diehard, went on to direct Speed and uh, The Haunting and Twister. But he was a cinematographer at this point, one of his first American films. And, uh, yeah, he, to get that shot, they cut a hole in the top of that Ford Pinto. Stuck it in a hole and just started spinning around. And he's like, man, I couldn't even see where I was stopping. I was just guessing. Uh, the cinematography in this movie, I mean, it's it's one of the, the best, the best shot movies in my book. I mean, even as in a June, kid, even as a kid, like... I remember talking to my dad, like asking him, why does this scary movie, Cujo, look more like a drama than these other scary movies? Like, why is it presented different? And of course, my dad doesn't know. And he's like, because it's about a dog. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I could see that. That's a point. You know, dogs are everywhere. You can be scared of, you know, like everybody has I had remember an encounter he, with I a dog. I remember he, he tried to answer and he said, well, Cujo is based in the real world and these other movies are supernatural, so they have to look different. And, you know, later on I, I realized that it was just a cinematographer and a director going for a more realistic look and taking the material seriously. I, mean, I, I, I can see that, though. I, can, I see where your dad's coming from. Like, even in Jaws, the shark is a giant great white. It's not a normal great white. Right. Cujo's just a normal fucking St. Bernard that has got rabies. It's, you know, it's an almost tragic story. It's uh, it's like when uh, when Old Yeller goes really, really bad. <laughs> I, I used to like that movie, too. Uh, yeah, you know. I, I, come on. Well, you know, we can't do a Cujo podcast without busting up Old Yeller. I mean, you know. Yeah. Who, Actually. Who didn't see that as a kid? Because my kids saw Old Yeller, they got to see Cujo. There you go. Watch the Disney version and then watch the uh, the version. That well, they wanted the to know what rabies was, and I was like, "I will show you." Play. <laughs> they do a they do a pretty good uh, uh, in the book and in the movie. It's a pretty accurate uh, portrayal of rabies. The stuff you should know. They they did a great podcast on rabies, so you can go over there, listen to it. It's like forty minutes long. All you want to never know about rabies. So we were talking about cinematography. I did want to talk about the director, Louis Teague, who um, went on after this to also do Cat's Eye, another Stephen King adaptation. Short stories. Yeah. Some really cool short stories, too. 
You know, I think the only one I, I really remember reading was Quitter's Inc. I remember The Ledge. That's the one I remember the most out, yeah. of, out of Cat's Eye. There's The Ledge, Quitter's Inc., and then the one with Drew Barrymore. I think that's all it's... Which that's one's Drew Barrymore in? She's the one with the, the cat, uh, protecting her from the little goblin stealing her breath. Or troll, or whatever that little little thing is with the little jingly jester hat. Yeah, I don't remember that short story at all. I remember I the other think, two short stories. I don't stories. think it was a short story. I think he wrote that one for the movie. Oh, okay. I, re- I reread Cujo, and then that made me want to go back and reread The Dead Zone. <laughs> I kind of want to read The Dead Zone after reading Cujo as well. Uh, I'm so, with you on that. so good, man. Like That is such a just good book. Well, let's go ahead and just break it out right now. We're, we're planning to do a uh, a book. Oh, yeah, an episode oh, a month based yeah. on the novel by. Yeah, there we go. We're going to you know try to squeeze in like uh, Silence of the Lambs. and We should definitely throw in Jaws. Jaws. For sure. We, we were talking about Lucas, uh, Louis Teague. We talked about what he did. He was originally Stephen King's choice to direct the movie, and then got passed by the studio or the producers. Oh, really? Yeah, and they actually hired somebody else that shot for two days with the cast, D. Wallace and everybody. Really? Yeah. And then, <laughs> I, I don't know why. Um, I guess it wasn't working out. Creative differences. Uh, and got replaced. Uh, they called Louis Teague back up and was like, hey, are you still interested in this movie? And he's like, yeah, man, I've already did, I already did a little bit of pre-production. Let's go. Came out, brought Jan DeBont with him, and uh, he also, after watching the dailies for a couple weeks, he also fired the editor. Really? Yeah, and yeah, I know this movie got the three the three big creatives <laughs> in your in your production. Uh, yeah, got all of them got replaced uh, during the course of the movie, uh, and then Neil Travis came in and, and cut the movie, who uh, won an Oscar for uh, film editing for Dances with Wolves. And speaking of Jaws, cut Jaws too. He's a he's a fantastic editor. He's uh, passed away, fortunately. But um, man, I gotta watch Jaws two again. Oh, dude, Jaws two is an underrated sequel. Uh, I always liked that movie. People hate on it, but whatever. You know, you you can. I understand why. It's definitely not as good as the first one, but it it's still good. I've se- I've probably seen the it only one. Times. The only Jaws movie I would say is terrible is is four four. Yeah, four is bad. And I don't like to say that movies are terrible, but. God bless. Oh, That's, dude. I mean, Jaws 3 does have the chewed up guy in the shark's mouth with the grenade. Well, that's how big the shark was. The shark was so big, it's like, oh, I have something stuck in my teeth. It's a human. But, <laughs> yeah, Jaws 3 is like just one step away from Megalodon on the sci-fi channel. Oh, you say step, I say inches. Like, that shark is so freaking big. It's... Well, I'm just talking about movie quality. Oh. <laughs> it's not quite Sharknado, but... <laughs> Two actors to win Oscars were in Jaws 3 and Jaws 4, so, you know, there you go. Michael Caine, Louis Gossett Jr. coming in. Oscar yeah, winners. You, man, you can't beat Quint's, man. Quint. Oh, well, everybody in the first movie is great. I don't have a single problem with any of the actors. Oh, we got, we got to stop talking about Jaws, though. All right, Which so. is one of my favorite movies. You can't bring it up without it, like, just going through my brain. All right, all right, all right. Save that. We're going to table Jaws from now on. There's a Jaws reference in Cujo, but we'll, t- we'll, we'll get there. He does the, oh, he does yeah. the shark fin around dun, the table. Dun, 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 yeah. Dun. yeah, yeah. And in the novel, they bust out a bunch of Star Wars references. These the kids got Greedo character, right? He's got yeah. Rico. Yeah, yeah. You know. there's there's a lot of Star Wars references in early Stephen King stuff. Well, there, well he had kids go. at that time, so I mean, dude, Star Wars is so fucking awesome. I mean, you know. Even if you didn't have kids. Now, see, you're just as bad about Star Wars as I am with Jaws. Now you're off on this. All right, no, okay, Star okay, Wars. Right, we're gonna, I'm we're stopping gonna, you. We're gonna focus. We're gonna focus here. We're gonna. I, I promise, we're focused. Back to the three people getting replaced. Um, so they're replaced, and they came in. And man, I I think 
Neil Travis, John DeBont, and or Jan DeBont, and um, the Lewis. dude that shot it, <laughs> and Louis Teague. Man, I thought their collaboration is what is what made this movie really, really stand out because the editing is amazing. The editing is beyond with, amazing. With they shot it with you know like a puppet dog, a real dog, and a dude in a dog suit. Nobody can agree on the number of dogs they used. By the way, <laughs> I read fifteen. Oh, dude, it, it's literally anywhere from five to I think maybe twelve. Twelve was the, the highest I heard. There's a part in the uh, in the behind the scenes where Dee Wallace is even laughing about it, where she's like, "How many how many dogs did they tell you?" <laughs> According to the internet, in which everybody knows what is on the internet is one hundred percent real. So take that with a grain of salt. Right. Five Saint Bernards were used, one mechanical head, and a guy in a dog costume. How many dogs? Five. Five? Yeah, I, I heard that was the low number. But nobody, I don't think anybody can agree on how many dogs there were. The editing, the cinematography, and cutting between all these dogs, and all the clever things that they did for the movie. Like, this was shot in actually in the cold. So there are a lot of cinematography, a lot of cinematography tricks that they use to make it look hot. Like they lit fire under the uh, out, just out of frame, below frame of the camera to get those heat waves coming up because those heat waves were not there because there was no fucking heat. Those little smart, ingenious touches like that, they set it apart. They make it really special as yeah. it goes further and further on into the film. And the cutting from the dog, I, I, I just really can't get over that because you have to remember this is before CGI. And the two rules they always tell you in film school are don't use dogs, don't use children. This movie did both and used both well. And it, uh, they do a really good job uh, bringing the dog in and hiding the dog through their cuts and their shot choices. Like you'll see the dog in one section and then she'll come out and she'll look around. She'll look where the dog was and then the dog's not there and then it'll cut behind her and then the dog walks into frame. It's like, man, you know, that stuff is so overused now, but I love the shot where she she gets out of the car and she's looking around and then you got the POV of the dog looking under the car at her. Yeah, you see her. Yeah, that's that scene. And that's how that scene builds. It's going from POV to POV and giving the audience different information at different times to ratchet up the suspense. So well done. So well done. All right, guys. So with that, I think we're going to take a break. We're going to play the trailer for Cujo. Man, we're going to go in and spoil the hell out of this film. Stay tuned. Nothing that lives in the imagination is more frightening. terror that lives in Castle Rock, Maine. Cujo? Cujo? Can you get us in here? Please, God, get me out of here. 
You know what? I like that they don't call out that Cujo has rabies, except for that one time when his owner calls him out. He's like, oh, my God, you're rabid. Well, at the same time, too, you're you're playing off of Donna and and Tad's experience with the dog. They don't really, like, show up and go, oh, oh crap, the dog is rabid. They show up, and it's the monster. In the beginning, though, you do get to see that it it's a friendly St. Bernard. A lovely. I mean, he even plays with Tad. And again, we're talking about these awesome shot reveals from the rabbit's perspective, if you have your back turned, and he's just a little bunny out in the field. Yeah. How you not don't see the giant slobbery St. Bernard, which I'm sure has got to be loud, coming up on you, I don't know, but the but rabbit that, doesn't. doesn't. Doesn't that dog look majestic in that shot? <laughs> well, it's awesome because it's terrifying. Like, the shot is from, like, underneath Cujo's legs looking at the rabbit. Yeah. And you hear that the ominous Cujo note. Charles uh, Bernstein, the guy that wrote the score for um, Nightmare on Elm Street, doing the score here. Uh, I really like the score in this movie, too. I man. think this is his better score. Uh, you think this is better than Nightmare? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Nightmare is just kind of kind of sounds. Oh, it's got that little piano, that... Dun, 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 dun. Well, it's, that's a classic but, little moment that I've heard repeated, but... Yeah. Cujo's just got a very strong score throughout. Yeah, especially like later in the movie when it, it starts getting like, you know, uh, dog attack scenes. Yeah. I love the music there, how it just gets so fast-paced and it gets you really pumped and adds to that tension. And I love how, too, like they play with the soundtrack... Joe and his friend are throwing their beer cans down. It's bothering Cujo. Now, that's something they constantly, like, will repeat in the middle of a scene where the dog will be present. And yeah. after he's bit by that bat. He doesn't, he gets to where he really doesn't like sound. Almost filming, not quite filming it from the dog's perspective, but almost. Like, you could totally sense the dog is getting more and more. Ah, these humans and their noises. No, no, I think you're right, man. I think they they do shoot it like from that dog, the dogs. Like, um, but it's not like it's not like you. Would it's think. not a POV. Yeah, no, it's not yeah. like totally from like you're still talk. You're, the humans are still talking, and it's still like their stuff going on. And then you just kind of go away to this. This I don't know. It's sort of an abstract way of showing the dogs. Well, yeah, they go, they put those low angles, right? Yeah. And they they get you where that dog would be. They put you in that in that dog viewing and, angle to see I mean, the I thought it was so brilliant like when he's when he's killing Gary when the, he's the bald heretic yeah when he's killing that guy he like he's so happy he's killing his tail's just a wagon <laughs> yeah I mean, for the most guy just dumping trash in his backyard yeah man I would get in the car and drive and take this to the dump but I am way too drunk <laughs> he just doesn't give a shit I think he says I don't give a shit now in the rest of the movie like to keep the tail from wagging, they they would tie the dog's tails down. Yeah, but those are shots where like it's the back of the dog, and you what are you gonna do? Show it again before CGI, folks. You know, the dog's so. tail is he's happy he's killing that fat dude. For the most part, though, they do a really good job of making the Saint Bernard really fucking scary. Imagine being the camera guy and having that Saint Bernard jump up at you constantly. Dude, imagine for those POV shots. Like D Wallace had that dog come near her like that. I'm like, I don't care if this is a movie set and there are other people around. No, no. That dog is huge. Like you mentioned D Wallace. To me when I grew up, D Wallace was the howling Cujo lady. That was the mom from ET for me, man. Even after I saw ET, like I didn't even connect. And it wasn't until later I was, holy crap, that is D Wallace. What am I thinking? I think this is her best performance in my book. Oh, yeah. It's a very strong performance. Oh, man. It's so good. The love affair and how she acts when Steve Kemp, the guy she's having the mm-hmm. affair with, comes into the house and she's got her back turned. And just the way she, she carries herself, 
kind of doesn't even really want to acknowledge he's there. Man, she, she's so cut it. Good. She's cut him off. She wants to get over this. That is such a great scene. Like she shows up at his house, and the camera is just fixed, and it's this nice little dolly shot, and it just it goes in, and she's standing right by the door, and she tells him it's over. And man, dude, Kemp just takes it like a man. He's just like, all right, you know, that's cool, honey. Man, the minute she gets out, he just on a dime turns into an asshole and starts running and chasing after her, and we never hear that conversation. Then it cuts to uh, Vic, who sees the argument, right? And he's like, "Oh, that's my wife." And when he goes back, they're gone. Like for me, watching the way he just kind of, like you said, takes it like a man. It's almost like he's waiting on her to like his arrogance is that she's going to see the error of her ways, <laughs> and then she yeah. turns around and walks off. He's like, "No, I'm not going to let her do this." And then I'm he the goes, town stud, damn it, on her. Why did they change that? He was bad at tennis in the movie, but he's the tennis pro in the book. Because I kind of – I did like that in the book where it's like the husband was the nicer guy, but this guy was just better well, he's at just everything the, else. He's the stud. Yeah. <laughs> he's the athlete. And, you know, and then they cut off him, cut out him jerking off on their bed. I mean, I, I can see why. You know, that's – you know. It would be, it'd be kind of an awkward scene to shoot. Uh, and the, the kid, uh, Tad, he's getting ready to have his nightmare. He's going to turn the lights off, and he's got to run to the bed, and when the lights go out... The bed looks so far away. Dude, yeah, they built a whole nother set just for that sequence. It's like four shots back to back. Okay, I've got to get from here to the bed. <laughs> and to the kids, you know, the world is a lot bigger than it is to us. I mean, just little stuff, too, like when the parents come in and the door had crept open, right? And the kids, he's, there's a monster, and the dad comes in, and they don't mention it. He just, he shuts the door, it opens again, he shuts it again. I like that. That was a nice touch, right? And it, that's just a little touch that shows why the door is opening, but ah, it's just, a, it's everything is just very well, like, choreographed. And see, I always felt sorry for Vic, too, because, like, you see these these moments where it's, Typical family scenes. You can tell he likes his family, and then right after that, you find out she's cheating on him. And then, you know, even when Kemp comes in, you don't know anything's wrong. You can kind of tell something's a little off because Donna's acting weird. To me, that was always a thing. Like, I noticed the like, first time I didn't notice that she was acting weird. Yeah, it, I just, yeah, I I just kind of assumed that these guys are friends and she doesn't really want to get involved. But then, second time, I'm like, oh. Yeah. It, it and then just the, totally whole, the whole play between. The actor that played Vic, uh, Vic and Donna, after he finds out, like you said, it's that just that one confrontational moment. They don't make this huge blow up, and I don't know. It's just the realism there, and you like you can tell how just distracted in his brain he is. Yeah, well, the, the guy's even there too. He doesn't deck him or anything, but you know he knows. And then once once Kemp leaves, Vic Vic asks Donna like, "Yes or no?" She's like, "Yeah." That's it. That's that's all we have here, folks. There's a line in the book where it describes Vic's feeling of being like he feels like he's been punched in the gut. And from that point on in the movie, you you get that sense from that actor. Like, this hurts, but I don't want to voice it. Action to him. I mean, I can sit down and watch this today, and I am enthralled. It could have gone down like a total Lifetime movie and just been very sappy. and With the dog. Yeah, been really bad. Well, they play the drama... Realistically, they don't over dramatize it, and then you still have the you know the the horrific moment where she gets trapped. Well, if you haven't seen the movie, Vic has to go out of town because his account is he's an ad agency, and 
There's some bad shit going on with their main account. I love how you said bad shit because the cereal has literally, red dye. and it's making people shit what looks like blood. <laughs> so he has to go out of town after finding out that his wife has cheated on him. Yeah. And so now he has to leave her alone. So you know he's thinking, like, is she going to go, is she going to hook up with him? Their their play is is perfect. Oh yeah, well even when she goes to the car and she you know she's like I want I just wanted to tell you it was it was off. He does not look at her. He can't. Like you get that sense he just can't look at her. If he if he's going to make this work, he's got to focus away from her. Yeah. Um her car breaks down so she has to go out to the mechanic's house, Joe Camber, and when she gets there their dog has gotten rabies and traps them inside their Pinto. Well, for Vic he goes through the whole, like, I'm thinking about leaving my wife, and now suddenly his wife may have been taken from him. So now his mission becomes get my family back. Because we know, the audience knows what's happening. Right. And when we cut back to him, each time he gets, like, a, a new piece of information, his it's a really interesting progression just so he can, I guess, try to save the day, but ends up sh- showing up well, way see, too late. No, I don't even think that's what his his character's purpose is. Like, in the movie, to me, it's it's his character arc is... He's been hurt. Is the is is she worth keeping? And then he gets her taken from him. He thinks that she's been kidnapped, or first he thinks. Yeah, at first he thinks she's they've run, run off. off. Yeah. But then he thinks, okay, maybe she's been kidnapped, and that changes his worry to now he's actually worried about her. I don't think he worries about her uh, like being kidnapped until he walks into the until house. he walks in the house. Yeah. But at that point, his worry changes, and then he's not worried about her cheating on him anymore. She, he's worried about her being okay. He accepts what she's done. He just wants he wants everything to be okay again. Yeah, well, I'm speaking in more in terms of like how we see his yeah. progression to get and and, and in, in like a in a natural script, he would show up and save them. But in this, Donna is forced to handle it on her own. Well, that's the thing, right? They keep cutting to other things to show you all these things that are possible points of salvation that get. Taken away from Yeah, right at the last minute. It's like even the mailman, like they keep cutting to that mailbox. That that mailbox is in like the foreground of so many shots when she's in the car. Eventually the mailman's gonna come. And then you cut to the mailman. (laughs) Oh, Camber's out of town. Oh, okay. Not going out that way. Oh man, like you poor sons of bitches. Why did you have to say that, dude? I actually probably saved the mailman's life, so you know, hey. Yeah. Poor Bannerman dies there. Sheriff Pangborn takes over he's an out-of-towner and there's a little stephen king mythology here for castle rock oh man castle rock how many how many places does stephen king have? he's got dairy from it right and he goes to dairy a couple of times yeah, he right? goes to dairy got and castle rock bag of bones uh got castle rock salem's lot or jerusalem's lot which is isn't that isn't that close to castle rock though in his little make believe Maine, yeah. yeah. Well, not yeah. yeah. None of these, none of these places are real, right? right? Castle Rock, Jerusalem's Lot, Derry, all those are made up. Like Derry's based on, I think, Bangor. Oh wow! So okay, so he based them on real places, though. Yeah, he just, and he'll okay. throw in like Cumberland is right above Jerusalem's Lot. Cumberland, yeah, which is a real place. As an adult watching the movie. It, granted, as a kid, the the affair stuff didn't mean as much to me as it does now. Like I can see yeah. they they build this tension between these two, and then there's that tension, and then you get the tension of her getting trapped there with the dog, and they keep building that with little stuff like the engine won't start, and the kids asking her to start the car, and she's telling him we need to let the battery rest. Just the sweatier they get, the hotter they get, the more dehydrated. The the way their lips are cracked. 
even at night, you know, like when the uh, when the light's coming in through the window and it's lighting Donna's face, you can see all the paw prints and the dirt and yeah. slobber from Cu- that Cujo left and the on the sweat window on her face is. You can just imagine being locked in this hot ass car. You can't roll the window down because the dog will get in and eat you. Well, they, they they try to roll the. There's a couple times at night where she's just like, oh, we you know we got to roll. We got to let air. I know, right? But they crack it just a little, just a little, man. But yeah. it's also too that play between a mom and her kid. The kid just doesn't understand the the danger, and he's oh, like, yeah. "Can we please roll the window down?" And then he's asking for food. Can, Mom, I'm hungry. She's like, we don't, we can't just go get food. But he's he's too young to understand. She's trying to be this loving mom, but there's just like, there just comes a certain point where you just want to turn around and go, you're four. You don't know. I know. You don't know. Shut the fuck up and let me do what I have to do. It it is it is really good because you do understand that frustration. I mean, I don't want to say like you know if you're a parent, you definitely understand. Everybody understands that. Like, even if you're yeah, an ass friend. You I know? think everybody should be able to get that. Yeah. I mean, I think it will hit a little bit more home to parents who have been in not that horrific of a situation, but it's been in a we situation where, you know, you're saying, just shut up for a second. We usually don't bring this up about a movie, but I'm going to bring it up. Oh I God. have always loved the poster for Cujo. No, that's a that's a great poster with the picket fence. That picket fence with the bloody Cujo. Yeah, the farmhouse out in the Man, background. That is that is such a classic. You know, if you want to get that, uh, I highly recommend listeners eBay uh, poster. You can get it for under thirty bucks. The original. Really? It's a really cheap poster. Speaking- you're, you're the box office guy. Did Cujo make money? Yes, Cujo did make money. It made uh, twenty twenty one million dollars off a five million dollar budget, and that's just in the U S. And you know, you have to remember this was. This is 83, so it would have come out in video a couple years later. I'm sure the rentals, I'm sure it made another 15 or 20-some million just off of that. The first time I saw it, though, was on TBS. TV rights had to be where they made a lot, too. Oh, yeah, dude. Like, TBS, I remember watching all these Stephen King movies from back in the... I remember The Shining, Carrie, Salem's Lot. They would have, like, the Stephen King blocks. Yeah, dude. I feel like they would play every movie from Carrie to Maximum Overdrive. Let's see if you remember this. Do you remember the... During the Stephen King blocks on cable, you would get the advertisement with Stephen King himself dressed in the, like, smoker's jacket and the... Haunted Mansion for the Stephen King Library. Oh, uh, where they were trying to sell, uh, where you sell get, those books. You join the book club. Yeah, and the they, mail order. Yes, you I get, do remember that. You get his new releases as soon as they release. <laughs> That's right. And you, get all, you get all the back orders, and you get the special unabridged version of The Stand or some crap like yep. that. Yeah, I remember that. Like, that is huge success for a writer. And pretty well, much after it, The Shining, they yeah, started I mean, going he, nuts. He, he struck gold when with the Carrie adaptation. Then The Shining was Kubrick doing The Shining. Kubrick then, did it. <laughs> um, Cronen- we all got to do it now. Cronenberg did Dead Zone. Hell yeah, Carpenter. John Carpenter did uh, Christine. So I mean, it was it wasn't like Toby Hooper did Salem's Lot. Yeah. and uh, what was the other one he did? Um, shit, he did another one. What was the other one he did? I am drawing a blank. But I didn't know he did two King adaptations. Yeah, and Mick Garris has done like fucking all the TV shit. <laughs> you gotta stop. You gotta you gotta move on. I'm past not Stephen sure King. what I'm not sure what the love affair here is with. <laughs> I think you know. I don't know. He liked Mick Garris's version of The Shining better. Uh, granted, he he also wrote the teleplay for that. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a fan really of the uh, of the miniseries too much. Uh, although I do like it, um, not as much as the book, but it, it's a fun movie. 
I'm really looking forward to the the theatrical version that's coming. It looks like they're doing some really good stuff. Yeah, I don't know about the uh, the costume that they had Pennywise in though. That really, I love it. It's very classic, like twenties type clown. It's one of those things like it's hard to see in a picture. It's meant to be in motion, so I need to see the motion on it. You know what I mean? I saw that the kid from Stranger Things is in it. They cannot do that. That's no playing Richie Tozer. It's just so obvious, though. Like, uh, well, I saw a blurb. Uh, how many great kid actors are there, though? Seriously, those I saw a blog great. the other day that said uh, Stranger Things proof that Hollywood should just rip stuff off instead of remake stuff. <laughs> yeah, I saw. I think that was a Hollywood Reporter article. I, yeah, I saw. I saw that. Uh, well, you know, hey, they got a point, man. You know, it steal from the greats, dude. Steal from the greats. Now you talking about the It miniseries? Like, I remember when that came out, and that first part with the kids. Oh, the like, first the first part? Yeah. Oh, no, dude, that, was, that was like TV gold. Yeah, dude. I could not wait for that next half. Like, that was so creepy for me. And then the second half was like... Really disappointing? Huh, so it's a giant spider. Kind of what it is in the book, right? It's like a, it's a giant crawdad or It's shit. a giant spider, but it's also a... Oh, and you know, in the book, they they get into the like the multiverse and the the. It's not its true form, but the human brain can't comprehend its true form, so that's the closest you're gonna get to the true form. Well, speaking of books, and Kujo, uh, let you know, let, let's talk about probably one of the biggest uh, biggest changes. The family that owns Cujo uh, is barely in the fucking movie, and they are all throughout the entire book. Well, they, she still wins the lottery. She she does still win the lottery. But and, she only gets and, like two scenes in the and movie. Joe Camber is still what great casting though. Like Joe and his wife. Can you not like you know those people? Yes, that's you. that's my uncle, and <laughs> those are freaking farm people, man. <laughs> and everybody in the movie just even down to like the Camber's kid. Oh, Brett. great. Great performances from all of these actors. Oh, dude, no, that's that's a great scene when Brett goes out looking the for his fog. dog. We, you know, we 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 get a little technical here sometimes, but man, we got we got to talk about this fog machine here because they didn't use a film fog machine because it wasn't going to provide enough fog. Because as you see, there's fog that, that fills this huge these huge wide shots in this right. film. So they used some kind of fog machine from the Navy that spits out fogs to hide ships at sea. Really? Yeah, to hide a fucking battleship on the fucking ocean. That's what they used to fog <laughs> fog this forest up for these scenes. And apparently, like they uh, they got the uh, <laughs> the uh, fire department to come out because they were so worried. They're like, "What? What's going on with the smoke all in this forest? There must be a forest fire." Which is great because you know they had five million dollars and they're still doing still doing stuff, you know, without permission. <laughs> Which, you know, that happens that's, on film sets that's sometimes. Film, that's filmmaking. Yeah, you know, hey, what can I get away with to get but the yeah, shot? But yeah, that scene is like, because, I mean, you know, the kid, that's his dog. He's never done anything wrong. And then that scene where he sees that silhouette oh, and man. he goes back in, there's something wrong with Cujo. Guys, lit so beautifully. That dog is so scary in that scene. Just the growl that it makes. I just remember thinking, oh, he's fixing to kill this kid. Oh, yeah, dude. You think that kid is going to bite it for sure. I I forget. I think he just called. He says something like, "Hey, boy," or "What's wrong, boy?" It's me, boy. And the dog just turns around and walks away. Yeah, and he's just like, "All right, I'm not gonna kill you now. I'm gonna go kill the neighbor." <laughs> well, you you can almost just sense that, like, I'm gonna kill. No, that's the boy. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk away. Um, and of course, uh, you know, Joe Camber ends up getting killed as well. Uh, after he finds his neighbor, and 
I, I like that. That was that was kind of the only time that we don't actually see the dog attack somebody. They went the Jaws POV route. Yeah. I, Which you know, I always thought worked because it saved – like you see him kill um, – you see him kill Gary and then you know he kills Joe because you get the POV. And then that just saves all that visual for when she gets there in the car. I don't know. I would have liked it just a little bit more, but – you know, I mean, I mean, what are we, what are we talking about here, man? We this time and money to get that dog on that actor, and at the end of the day, do you really, do you really need it? No, no, it, it doesn't break the movie for me. But it is one of those scenes where I would like to see it. But I do like that they cut outside of the house, and you do get to hear it happen, and they don't just straight cut away from it because that left it way into the imagination. And like Cujo is in there just tearing him up. Well, I mean, the editor does a really good job of snipping the scenes right where they should be cut. Like they're just, they're cut right at that moment where they should go. Like all the conversation stuff. Like we don't even hear the whole entire conversation. We'll just hear like one or two lines from it. And then we'll just go and go to the next scene. Cause we got the I, important part. I do mm-hmm. remember like uh, there's some beautiful scenery in this movie, like the Trenton house where Donna and Vic live like oh, yeah. that. That view is awesome. Oh yeah! But I remember like growing up, my dad was like, "Man, what a dick!" He's got like a brand new Jaguar, and she has a fucking Pinto. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, the Ford Pinto. You know, I think there's even a line in Speed, which you know, John Debont, you know, worked on the Pinto. Uh, you know, they actually to shoot the car. At the end, they actually shot a bunch of different cars, and the special effects team cut them in half and cut them in different parts so they could fit the camera in there because, you know, fucking film cameras back in the day are huge. Right. You can't just put that in a car. Well, even still today, you would, to get some of those shots, you would have to yeah, yeah, alter you would. the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the, some of the, sh- some of the shots they have and where they placed, man, they, they are, it is, it is amazing. It really is. But I, I, I'm pretty sure, um, Sandra Bullock's character in Speed even even says the bus is like driving a really big Pinto. <laughs> is that a line uh, for for Cujo? Is he referencing Cujo there, or was that just what the screenwriter had? They were and... just pieces of shit. <laughs> I, I like to think that you know Yon Debon's like, yes, uh, I fucking hate Ford Pintos because I made Cujo. Well, my dad's a mechanic, and he used to talk about how much of a piece of shit they were. Yeah, I, I drove a Ford and uh, I drove a Ford Escort in in high school, so I always heard, uh, you know what Ford stands for, don't you? No, what? Found on road dead. <laughs> well, that's really funny. <laughs> Man, I heard that so many times in high school. I swear to God, favorite car I've ever had was a Ford Escape. I mean, you know, hey, I I liked my Ford Escort. It treated me well. The one thing that even as a kid I was like, eh, all right, I'll buy it, but not really buying it. At the end of the movie, Bannerman's been killed. She gets the gun. She kills the dog. Well, she thinks she's killed the dog. But now she's accidentally locked her son inside the car, and she's outside the car. And she uses the gun to break the back window out of the Oh, man, that's hatchback. an awesome shot. Yeah, it's all slow-mo, and she screams. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Their gradual dehydration that leads to uh, Tad's seizure... Man, just that seizure alone, like, that is creepy looking. My oldest son actually had uh, febrile seizures for a while. It's pretty accurate, too, man, and it, that's that's how it happens. It just springs on you out of nowhere. Yeah, it's scary shit, dude. Now, 
do not ever put your fingers in somebody that's seizing. You don't, you don't have to worry about them swallowing their tongue. That's an yeah. old wives tale. <laughs> so don't do what Donna did and put your fingers in there because they will bite your fucking fingers off or try to. So don't don't do that. But uh, yeah, no, I mean that, and that's that's that is a good scene. The tension here from when they pull up in that car, like when you were talking about when they're like "fuck you, dog," right to the end of this movie. And when I say to the end of the movie, I mean until the credits start rolling. It's it's pretty on point, man. It builds yeah. pretty nicely. And just I mean for me, like just that makeup gradually takes them to like from from. Nice looking suburban people to sweaty and dirty to bloody and his oh, even eyes the dog. are getting dark. Oh, the dog is yeah. just mangled looking. Like just the way it starts off, like oh, it's a Saint Bernard, and then like oh, it's got the the eye. Uh, well, they they slobber. they go like they add more because the more he's killed, the more blood he has on him. Yeah, and they really turn the dog into like this monster. His hair starts getting matted from all the, the slobber that like, goes everywhere in the yeah. blood. Yeah, dude, it's it's. Good. I was reading some of the trivia before we did this, and apparently they had a hard time because that was like an egg white mix. Yeah, with sugar. <laughs> and every time they would put it on the dog's face, the dog would lick it all off. Oh, yeah, I bet you the makeup guys were loving that. Like, God, fucking dog. Uh, this movie apparently has Stephen King's favorite scare for many of his adaptations. Oh, it's a good scare, too. When the dog jumps up on the passenger's window. Yeah, I'm talking about misdirection earlier. The door is open on the driver's side, and that's where you, that's where you're expecting it to happen. Dana has her legs, or um, yeah, she's got her legs like out the yeah, door. She's fixing to get out. Yeah. Oh man, that scene where he bites her leg—that oh. just looks so painful. Oh, all oh, that's bad. Like even when the sheriff gets it, and that like section of his stomach gets ripped out. There, there is an awesome, awesome shot. I have no idea how they got. They must have had a dummy for the sheriff. But it's Donna's uh, POV of the sheriff getting attacked in the barn. And, man, you actually see the dog, like, wrestling. It looked like the way they cut it, it looks like he's actually wrestling a human being on the ground. And it's viciously attacking him. But the shots are so quick. And, and you how know, they're cut in there, you just get that good feeling of it. And I remember, like, being a teenager watching the movie again and being like, I don't see why they're like, it's just a dog. And then I finally saw a full-grown St. Bernard, and I was like, oh, this thing's huge. There's a difference between seeing a 200 pound dog on a movie screen than to yeah. see a 200 like jump up and put his paws on your shoulder. You're just like, dude, you weigh as much as I do, and you're all muscle. You don't even have a gut. I, I do like the uh, the final confrontation. All right, just for a little spoiler here, in the book, there's a baseball bat. Yeah, And she hits the dog with the baseball bat. The baseball bat breaks, and then she stabs the dog in the stomach with the baseball bat. They do that in the movie. Yeah. And then she gets Tad. She takes him into the house. She's putting water on him, and then the dog jumps through the window. Oh, that's great. So I was wondering what, like, I've heard a lot of people say that they think that's the one moment that it skips a little bit too much. No, man, I thought it was great. It fits with the carry vibe, right? Yeah, I've always liked that last little... Here, here he comes. It's that moment in the scream where the the bad guy always comes back for one last scare, man. And you know, I like that the fact that she finally gets to use the gun and shoot the fucking and dog. I love that last shot of when Vic shows up. He sees the car and he looks over and they're coming out. Donna carries Tad out the front door, and they just look like they have been through the apocalypse. I, I you know, I usually hate freeze frames. Because it's, they're so fucking cheesy. But you know what? It works in this movie. 
I don't really know why. Maybe maybe it's because of what you're talking about. Maybe it's because they're so worn out and it and it kind of freezes when they're together as a family with yeah. the kids in the arm. But well, like it does. All work. of their character arc has just come to a com- to a moment right there. And they cut the fat out of this movie, dude. You see what you need to see to get the story. Like, okay, we're together. We know they're safe. We know Donna is gonna get her rabies shots and be okay. The book goes on for like another oh, man, like forty, fifty pages almost. Is it that long? Yeah. I always remember it being like ten pages. I don't know. Maybe it is like only like ten pages, but yeah, it seems like it goes on for a little bit. Because the kid dies. Then the Donna, police, beats, Donna the beats the shit out of the dog. <laughs> like fucking ten pages right there. <laughs> um, they cut Cujo's head off. Take it to the lab. Donna gets her rabies shots. Stephen King's like, hey, Cujo was, was, was a nice dog. Like, he goes out of his way to mourn the dog more than he does the child. That is, that's a little bit of a problem. No, he just forgets about the kid. <laughs> he totally like, forgets about the kid. Donna doesn't. Like she's totally messed up in the head. But oh, no, she's she's gonna have therapy, bro. She's gonna see her. Like Vic's life is ruined. <laughs> yeah, wife cheats on you. Child's gone. Wife's insane now. Yeah, he's basically dealing with an insane vegetable for the rest of his <laughs> life, and he's just like, oh, I should have just stayed in Chicago. How's your wife doing? Oh, you know, she's on the lithium today. She's doing. She's doing okay. <laughs> she hasn't woke up screaming in a week. <laughs> Uh, I do like when she gets out of the car though, and they get ready to have that that final confrontation. Um, and they, they do they give her a good reason for actually getting out of the car. Uh, you know, she's losing her baby. She listens to the heartbeat, and she finally gets out of the car. Well, it, it's come down to like you have to go fight this dog, man, or your kid's gonna die. Yeah, it's it is a complete spaghetti western standoff. Oh yeah, but I like too that they've built it up from because up until then. She's waiting on someone to come save her. But at that point, she realizes that nobody's coming. If I don't get out and do something, he's going to die. It's either going to be her kid or the dog. Yeah, it's it's good, too, because the the sheriff had just shown up, and you know that there's going to be another cop out there in, like, a day. If she can make it one more day, but she can't. But she can't. Her kid is not going to make it. Man, that is good, And, you know, she has to make that decision of... And it, it, there's no doubt, too. Like, she just watched this dog kill a full-grown man. Like, there's no doubt that this dog can kill her. And that guy had a gun, too. Yeah. And climbed up on some rafters. And, <laughs> like, the dog just, like, uh, no. So, like, she has to make this decision of this is my this is my only hope. Like, either I die or the dog dies. Everybody did a fantastic job. Um, it's one of those behind I mean, the scenes. We've made it. We've made the comment before, but it's one of those rare situations where just everything from source material to locations to just everything just melds perfectly together. It, it's a shame. Uh, I don't know what Lewis Teague's doing, but man, I man, I wish he was doing more stuff. Man, I wish he was giving us more movies. What was the last movie he made? He did Navy Seals, so that probably Navy Seals probably hurt his career a little bit. What did he do after that? Uh, not too much. Uh, some TV episodes, uh, a movie called Wedlock with, uh, Rutgard Howard. Did some episodes of Nash Bridges, uh, some TV movies, a short Charlotte Charletta? an unusual young woman from Barcelona is trying to figure out who she really is while her lawyer tries to keep her out of jail. I, I don't know what that movie, um, uh, that is, but that, 
That was 2010, man. That was six years ago. You know, this is the last thing he's done. And I've always, it always amazes like, me, what? like somebody that makes a movie like Cujo that is really good. He did make Alligator too with Robert Forrester. And then, you know, they just kind of go away. Like, man, I hope he's doing what he, he what he likes to do. Well, I mean, the same thing happened with Yon DeBont. The, the last thing he did was that uh, Tomb Raider two, the Cradle of Life. And uh, I, yeah, I haven't seen him make uh, anything else since. I think he made a lot of people. Uh, in Hollywood mad. I think he's he's got a reputation of having a little bit of an arrogance, but he is badass. He looks can, like he deserves it. <laughs> I know, right? He can, he, he, can, he can be a little arrogant in my book. I'm okay with that. You know? It's like, hey, yeah, you can tell me what to do because you know what you're doing. <laughs> as long as you make the stuff look good, then, yeah, you can be as arrogant as you want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in his movies he directed, I mean, I enjoyed almost all of them. I, I like Speed. Um, like Twister, it's you know, the story's kind of stupid, but his direction's on point. Twister's one of those movies. Like I remember going to see it, and I remember the big hype because it was the Dolby. Remember? Oh, oh man, you can, special you effects. You can and... feel it just going. You can feel the tornadoes going by, and dude, that was. That was that I remember was a going to see it and just loving it, thinking, "Oh, this is the greatest movie ever." <laughs> and I don't remember thinking that. <laughs> you know, just that that kid kind of amazed at the. Yeah, no, I get you. You know, I don't know. I, I just, special effects and adventure, the music, and it gets you. Pumped. I think I sort of miss that that event feeling when you go see something like that as a kid. That like, there's that magic that wow, like you feel like you know you're really seeing this. And I think too. I mean, I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. This is not me bad mouthing CGI. I just think because everybody is sort of aware of CGI and sort of aware that that's how they're gonna do it. There isn't that magic of like, well, how did they do that? Like, well, how yeah. did they film that? Because now you're just like, oh, they used a computer. They, they yeah, did a computer. Uh, it's just it's just like an upgraded cartoon. You gave us your slight uh, review of uh, Conjuring 2. I watched that, and some of the shots in that, dude, like when they're establishing the house in that, that camera's going all over the place. There wasn't one moment in that where I felt excited like I did in Cujo. Because I'm just like, oh, well, okay, yeah, I know you did that kind of with a computer. Right, and, yeah. You know, There's, yeah. It's not that... Your camera's cool, but... You never yeah. once go, how did they do that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And the problem is, is like, our CGI is really good, but it's not perfect enough where I cannot see the seams. And I've mentioned this before, and this this maybe just because, you know, I'm I'm... I'm older. I remember the movies from. The- <laughs> You're an old, old guy. All I'm right, not that old. So- <laughs> I don't even have a four in front of my age yet. <laughs> oh, hey, look, I mean, we're we're old guys, all right. We grew up on movies where they they well, had to shoot shit for real, man. Well, yeah, I mean, we had to, you know, they had to or actually with- shoot stuff, and yeah. when you actually shoot it, it it's it's real. You're seeing something that's photographed. It gives something for the actors to do. And work right. with in a scene as well. And, you know, when you're watching something that's full of CGI, like, there's, you can't help it. There's nothing you can do about it. It adds just a little bit of a, a fakeness. Yeah, it's you, a little artificial. You cannot, you can't fake real. Think about, like, how the dog would look if it was a CGI dog. As opposed to seeing that <sighs> real grit in the hair. No, I don't want to, no, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> the real dog there and the makeup and... Man, I don't even want to think about what these guys went through. Just I don't even want to think about this new one that's coming out. Oh, that now that looks like shit. But Cujo, the release, the releases for it on home video are not—they're not particularly great. Um, they put out a, a nice 
DVD that has a commentary, uh, 40-minute making of, and, you know, that's pretty much it. I think it's got the trailer, and, you know, that, that's, all, that's all that's on there. But if you buy this thing on Blu-ray, you're just getting the movie. That's it. So if you can find the 25th anniversary, you can find it on eBay. You know, it's, it's worth the $10. If you haven't seen the movie, you have Netflix. I mean, at least check it out on Netflix. Yeah, it's it's HD on Netflix. Uh, you know, there's you know a whole generation of people are, are discovering Stephen King and the adaptations to his novels. This is definitely one of the best adaptations. Oh yeah, I w- I would put this in top five, dude. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was actually having a, <laughs> a conversation not too long ago about which one do you like better, Cujo or Misery? I was like, ah, Cujo. Cujo. Yeah, they're like, "What misery is the?" I'm like, yeah, you know, misery is the more prestigious one, but I, I've seen Cujo more than I've seen Misery, man. I've seen Misery five times. I've seen Cujo like twenty, thirty times. I, I rewatched this three times just prepping for this podcast because I enjoyed it so much. Misery, Kathy Bates gives an excellent performance. Oh no, her and James Conner, both terrific. Yeah. Oh, she nails. She, but she hits the ball out of the park, though. There's there's just so much texture and layer in Cujo. You know, when you hear like you see all these credits on a movie, when all of those are done well, it's a good movie. Damn straight, man. All right, so I guess with that, if you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail dot com. That's themoviecrew. Crew is spelled C R E W E. Extra E at the end. At gmail.com. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter at Movie Crew Pod. You can uh, find us there. Ask us questions. We do a pretty good job of responding um, to the four people that have <laughs> asked us to cover movies that we have yet to get to, by the way. But they, hey, are, they are on the list. We're, we're on the, yeah. You know, hey, we're getting there, guys. We're getting there. You know, this stuff comes up and we got ideas. And, you know, sometimes you're just not in the mood to watch a movie, you know, and dissect it. To the nth degree, like we do here. But Benson, where can people find out more about you, good sir? I don't know if they're going to find anything out. They can get in touch with me at J. Edward Benson on Twitter. Oh, okay. Did I say find out? I said find you. I meant to say find you. God, I'm stupid. We would highly appreciate it if you check out our film. It's out now on VOD. Girl in Woods. You can see it on uh, Amazon. I'd prefer you watch it on like, like Voodoo, iTunes, somewhere where we can make some money, DirecTV. There you go. Watch it on iTunes. I, I like that. Watch watch it on iTunes, guys. Buy Look, it. You're listening to the show on iTunes, right? So just, just just jump over. Go from podcast and then hit movies. Girl in Woods. Like the critical reviews have been really good. All right, guys. So with that, we're gonna play some of Charles Bernstein's awesome score for Kuju. Kuju? 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 What am I saying? Kujo. <sighs> Thank you. There we go. Uh, We're going to play the theme from Cujo, the main titles. Uh, This is the track that opens the film. Enjoy.
Thank you.